Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference every year. Head over to CanMedEvents.com now to learn all about our CanMed 2021 event that will take place September 29th through October 1st at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. And be sure to get your tickets at our special early bird rate. While you're at CanMedEvents.com, be sure to sign up for email alerts to stay up to date with all the news surrounding this industry-leading event. The best place to do that is on our podcast page, which you can find in the main menu under the media tab. You can also go there directly by going to canmedevents.com slash coffee talk. There is a sign-up form on that page, and if you complete it, you will be entered into a drawing to win two CanMed 2021 VIP dinner tickets. While you're there, you can also listen to all the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast episodes in our archive. On this episode, we talk with Van Butzik, the co-director of the Berkeley Cannabis Research Center and Cooperative Extension Specialist at UC Berkeley. The Cannabis Research Center uses an interdisciplinary approach to address questions at the intersection of cannabis policy, the environment, and cannabis-producing communities. At CanMed 2021, Van will participate in the panel discussion about the environmental impacts of cannabis production. In our conversation, we discuss why it's important to better understand how cannabis cultivation affects the environment, how cannabis compares to other crops in terms of its environmental impact, how outdoor cannabis cultivation affects rivers and streams, the challenge of collecting data on unpermitted cannabis farms, and how easing the permit and licensure requirements for farmers could lead to better environmental outcomes. Before we get to my conversation with Van, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Colorado Seed. Colorado Seed is a cannabis genetics company based out of Boulder, Colorado. They're innovators of cannabis cultivation and breeding techniques and have been locally producing licensed cannabis seeds since 2008, specializing in high-potency, unique breeding lines suitable for both home and commercial grows. For more information, go to coloradoseedinc.com. And lastly, it wouldn't be the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast without some good coffee. And for that, we always turn to the Hemp and Coffee Exchange. If you don't know, Hemp Coffee is a healthy, delicious, natural product, rich in trace minerals and nutrients, providing sustained energy without the crash of regular coffee. For more information, check out hempcoffeeexchange.com and use the promo code DRINKHEMP to get 10% off your purchase. Okay, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Van Butzik. Good morning, Van. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right, and you are the co-director of the Cannabis Research Center at UC Berkeley. Uh, I was wondering if you could briefly explain to the listeners what is the work that you do there? Sure. So the Cannabis Research Center is a group of interdisciplinary scholars who focus on the intersection of cannabis, cannabis policy, 
cannabis producing communities and the environment. So I think that the sort of three most important parts of our work is one, we're interdisciplinary. We have natural sciences, people who are ecologists and freshwater scientists. We have social scientists, we have anthropologists in our group. We have people from the law school in our group. We have geographers in our group. We have economists in our group. Uh, so that's one of the key things is our research really tries to take a, a 360 degree look at, at cannabis issues. The second sort of important part of our group is that we're really focused on sort of the, the communities that produce cannabis, uh, the policies that impact cannabis, and then broadly how they're all related to the natural environment. So we're interested in sort of how policy changes, how farmers act, and then how that you know, output leads to environmental changes. Um, so we're, we're sort of have a, a niche where we're not sort of focused on the health side of things. We're really focused sort of on this environment and community side of things. And then the third thing that I think makes our, our center unique is we're really interested in being sort of active participants in um, the cannabis space insofar as we're interested in our research informing policy and, and public decisions. So we do a lot of outreach. We, we try to make our research accessible to the broad public and try to make sure that our, our research is useful to the policymakers and the public as they make decisions. Excellent. And why do you think it's important to better understand the environmental impacts of cannabis cultivation? Like what's at stake? That's a great question. Um, you know, a bit of background. So I started researching cannabis probably six or seven years ago. And at the time we were seeing a lot of really nice pieces uh, in the popular press about some of the environmental impacts of outdoor cannabis cultivation. And, you know, my thought as a researcher was, well, is this like really going on? You know, is this the case? Are we seeing these big impacts? And of course, when we started digging into it, uh, what we found was was a pretty complex story. And we found, of course, that that a lot of the the, the information was just unknown, right? There wasn't data about these impacts. So to a large extent, a lot of the work we've done is just trying to set a baseline of trying to understand like what's actually happening um, with cannabis and the environment. You know, are these effects something that, that we need to be focused on? Um, you know, what's at stake with, with cannabis cultivation and the environment, I think is two things. Um, first, you know, historically, uh, cannabis has been cultivated in remote areas of the world. And this is true in California where we have sort of historical cultivation spots up in the Emerald Triangle, which are really difficult to sort of access. Uh, but it's actually true sort of internationally as well. You know, the areas where cannabis has been grown in Thailand or other, other places across the globe um, are usually, you know, in remote areas. And these remote areas also are oftentimes of high sort of environmental values, right? So these are areas that have a lot of natural value to us, have not been developed into cities and suburbs yet. So there's sort of this natural intersection of places where cannabis has historically been grown and at high environmental uh, values. The second sort of part to the question of what's at stake is we think because cannabis regulation is sort of starting from scratch, there's the potential for how cannabis is regulated as an agricultural crop relative to the environment to change how we think about sort of agricultural regulation broadly. So for example, in California, uh, the, the environmental standards to which cannabis farmers are held are, are generally higher 
than what we would see for other agricultural crops, right? There's a lot more permitting involved. Uh, it's basically all organic. And, you know, a big question is, well, if we can figure out how to make the cannabis industry successful while meeting these really high environmental standards, can this be a model that can be expanded to, to all of agriculture? And how do you go about collecting the data to do your analysis? So we use, you know, we have a interdisciplinary team, so we use sort of mixed methods. And so our data collection involves a lot of different things. So, you know, personally, my work is basically used, I, I'm, I come from a background of sort of economics and geography. And so the first thing I did was I wanted to know, well, how many cannabis farms are there and where are they at? Um, and so we used remote sensing data, um, high resolution satellite data, uh, basically what you see if you go to Google Earth and you, you get the highest resolution data possible. And we used that to identify cannabis grows throughout different areas of California. Um, so that kind of gave us like a spatial footprint of where these farms were, how big they were, how they were changing over time. And then we have, um, there's starting to be some pretty good um, data coming from the state. So uh, in, in California, basically cannabis users or cannabis, sorry, cannabis producers uh, need to record their water usage. So we're starting to get a pretty good um, idea of how much water cannabis producers are, or cannabis producers are using and where that water is coming from. And so that's sort of data collected as part of the permitting process in the state. And there's a number of other sort of um, interesting data pieces that are coming out from the permitting process as well. Of course, those don't, uh, that data doesn't cover non-permitted farms. But so to get at non-permitted farms and, and what non-permitted farmers are doing, uh, we've done a lot of survey work. So we've, 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 really, we've done two large surveys of cannabis farmers, both permitted and unpermitted, uh, focused primarily in California and a little bit in Southern Oregon. Um, and we're going to have another, another uh, survey kicking off next year. So basically this combination of like satellite data, so collected from, from satellites, uh, data that we can, we can get from the permitted industry through sort of uh, records requests to the state. And then the third one is sort of asking growers them, themselves through surveys. Interesting. I wonder what sort of um, incentives do you need to, to um, what, what sort of incentives do you need to use to encourage some of the non-permitted people to, <laughs> to give up their information? I imagine that might be a yeah. little tricky. <laughs> yeah, it is tricky. Um, you know, I think the, the surveys we've done, and what I want to say that we, you know, I think we've been able to get pretty good participation by non-permitted growers, but I think there's probably a certain type of non-permitted grower who we're not getting participation from, right? Who just has no, no interest in, in sort of giving this information. I think that the, the type of non-permitted farmer we're getting is someone who, you know, if, if the economic situation was a little different in the permanent market, and if it was a little bit easier to get permitted, might be interested in it, you know? But uh, for now, it is sort of, you know, staying on the outside. Um, you know, I think for a lot of non-permitted farmers, they they feel like they're sort of um, vilified, right? They're they're seeing sort of this press about the, the negative impacts of cannabis on the environment, and you know, usually that is is blaming sort of the non-permitted growers. And you know, there's a lot of non-permitted growers who are are using you know totally 
totally environmentally sustainable production techniques and are not getting permitted for other reasons, you know, not related to, you know, their care for the environment at all. And I think that there's, there's plenty of growers who want to be able to tell that story and want, want that story told. And so I think that's the incentive for them to, to do the survey, do the surveys is, um, you know, if they feel like they're not being represented fairly, this is a chance for, for the data to, to show, you know, what they're actually doing. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So we've, we've sort of set up what the mission is for your, for your group and how you're collecting data. What have you found so far? Yeah, we found uh, a number of things. I mean, and, and I'm going to give a little bit of plug here. I, I, if the listeners want to check out um, our website, which is uh, crc.berkeley.edu. So this is the CRC, the Cannabis Research Center, crc.berkeley.edu. Uh, we have something we call our science briefs, which are basically uh, distilled versions of our peer-reviewed work. And I think we have three of them up right now. We have two more that are in production. And this will give you like a really good overview of all the research we've done without having to go read the, the primary academic work. Uh, the primary academic work is also on our website, so you're welcome to check that out as well. But what have we found? Uh, generally, I think what we found is that uh, one, there's a lot of cannabis farms, um, you know, uh, most of which are unpermitted in Cal, and this is related to California. So almost all of our research thus far has been, has been California focused. Um, there's a lot of research, most of it is related to to, to California. Uh, sorry, there's a lot of farms. Most of the farms are are unpermitted. So you know, probably a quarter maybe are are permitted at this point. Probably maybe less. Um, oh. It's hard. It's hard to put a, a, a number on it. Now, uh, is that is that in number of farms or is that just sort of the percentage of the overall kind of footprint? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So that's the number of farms. Uh, what we have found is that the farms that get permitted are on average much larger than the farms that don't get permitted. So that I think that the, the amount of acreage that's permitted is certainly higher than the number of farms. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does yeah. make sense. I guess it'd be, it's much harder to, to hide a big farm. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's about hiding and it's also just about cost, right? So, I mean, the cost to permit a big farm is not all that different than the cost to permit a small farm. Um, and, and so, you know, you have some economies of scale there. Uh, there are different sort of license fees for different size farms, but most of the, the cost is not actually like the fees you're paying to the state or the county, it's usually the upgrades you have to make to your facility before it can get permitted. And those oftentimes are not actually related to the farm itself. So a good example is, you know, in Mendocino and Humboldt County, where a lot of people have sort of these um, long private dirt roads going back to the farms, uh, to get your permit, the whole road leading to the farm has to meet certain environmental standards. And so you might have to replace, you know, three or four or five culverts along the road before you can get your cannabis permit. And so, you know, replacing those culverts costs the same amount, whether you're permitting a, a quarter acre or two acres of, of land. And so, you know, I think this is, there's some real economies of scale in the permitting process for the larger, larger farms. Okay. I didn't mean to derail you there, but I think you're, you're. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. So what did we find? So lots of farms, 
most of them are non-permitted and most of them are still small, right? So, I mean, relative to other types of agriculture. So, um, you know, most farms are still less than an acre in California, um, which is which is still, you know, a really small farm uh, space-wise. And even the larger farms are still relatively small, right? Even, I think the biggest farms we have are, are maybe approaching 30 or 40 acres now, and that's still a pretty small farm. Um, you know, related to farm size, we see a, a gradient basically with smaller farms in the northern part of the state, and then the farms getting larger as you move into the central coast in Southern California, uh, with Santa Barbara sort of having the most acreage um, and area. From an environmental perspective, uh, what does that mean? Uh, basically, it means that we haven't seen, you know, cannabis become like a dominant land cover type in most parts of the state. Um, we, we haven't seen huge amounts of timber removal from cannabis, although we have seen some. Um, on the water use side, what we found is that it's really about the timing of the water use and not so much the amount of water. So cannabis seems to use about the same amount of water as any other agricultural plant. Um, you know, two to three acre feet of water per year. Um, the conflict, and this is somewhat California specific, but the conflict occurs because, um, you know, California is grown in the summer. Cannabis is grown in the summer. Um, in California, we have drought conditions every summer. That's just, we have a Mediterranean climate. So we generally don't get any, any rain from say May till October. Um, and so the plants require irrigation. Uh, this is the same time that, of course, the streams and rivers are at their lowest point um, because there hasn't been any rain for a number of months. And so there's a conflict there. What we found is that uh, this conflict can be mediated through storage. So if farmers can store water in the winter and then use it in the summer, that works really well. Um, of course, there's some, some issues with storage insofar as uh, it's expensive and you need to have enough. Um, but we have found that it does seem like some of these water-related conflicts can be can be mitigated uh, through good planning and, and investment in storage. Yeah, and that stood out to me when I was reading the the brief you put together about water usage, and I, I imagine from a, a cultivator standpoint, the fact that the summers are dry in California is a good thing because. Um, coming from the Northeast and having limited experience with cannabis right. cultivation, the hardest part is when you have flowering plants and you get into the wet and raw part of the year, you have an issue with, with mold and other right. unwanted effects. So um, it's, it's just interesting to me that, you know, there's a benefit there, but obviously there, there's an environmental trade-off with the water usage. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's probably right on. I mean, I think there's a lot of benefits to the the climate out here for growing and you know having this low humidity for for uh, you know especially the latter part of the season when when plants are flowering. Um, but yeah, it 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 does line up to exactly when you don't want to be taking water from the environment. Um, <laughs> so, so storage is important. We also see a lot of people using uh, groundwater, so using wells. Um, you know, we have some concerns that, you know, the wells are, of course, connected hydrologically oftentimes to the surface water flows. So, um, you know, making sure that 
if people are using wells, there's not too many wells on one stream and they're not hydrologically connected to the, the surface water. Um, or the people are using the wells in the winter to, to pump water into storage, which, which works, works really nicely as well. And now I'm curious, how do your findings change when you kind of look at indoor cultivation versus outdoor cultivation? So, so far we haven't done a whole lot with indoor cultivation. And there's a few reasons for that. First is that um, sort of indoor cultivation, the environmental impacts are, are more or less regulated by the municipalities. So, um, you know, for example, water use, a municipality, uh, you know, is charging a rate for the water use and the cannabis grower is is paying that rate using the water and then um you know it's probably going into a sewer system where the water is treated so we're not particularly concerned about the environmental impacts uh of indoor cannabis production in the same way we are uh, outdoor cannabis production just because there's you know not a lot of exposure to the environment of course, the caveat there is indoor production can take a tremendous amount of energy. And so broadly, if we're interested in energy use and, and carbon uh, carbon production and being concerned about global warming, that's an area where sort of the indoor market um, conflicts with sort of environmental concerns. Uh, we have not done a whole lot of research on that issue, although I do suspect that in the future, uh, making indoor farms as energy efficient as possible will will be something that uh, state and local governments look at as they try to reduce carbon emissions. Okay, and you had mentioned that part of your your research has to do with policy and regulations and sort of how that impacts the industry. And I know it's been four years since adult use was approved in California. How, if at all, has the environmental impact of cannabis cultivation changed in the last four years? That's a great question. And I'm not sure we can answer um, sort of quantitatively, but I think we can give some, some qualitative answers to that. Uh, first, I think that pretty much any permitted cannabis farm in California is going to have minimal environmental impacts. Um, the regulations are set up such that if you're following the rules and you're able to get your permits, which means you know your site was approved for cannabis production, the odds that you're doing something that is really environmentally harmful, I think are pretty low. Um, I think the rules are set up to, <laughs> to sort of prohibit that. So in that way, I think that probably, you know, cannabis you're buying on the legal market in California that's outdoor grown or mixed light grown, which is sort of what we studied. Um, it's probably, you know, I, I would not worry about its environmental footprint too much. I think it's probably pretty good. Uh, sort of where there's been a, where I think there's a lot less known is because the environmental regulation, I mean, partially because the environmental regulations have been so difficult for many growers to meet. Um, you know, as I said, most farmers are still not doing it in the permanent are not growing in the permanent market and so you know we don't really know what the environmental effects of those farms are uh, that's what we're you know we're still trying to quantify that um i think it's sort of a balancing act by the state to try to on one hand you you want to get people compliant and get them in the legal market which is 
is, you know, then we can sort of assure that they're having high um, environmental standards. Uh, yet, if you make the environmental standards too high and too costly for people to comply, then they're they're more willing to stay outside, uh, you know, and not join the permitted industry. So it's a it's a fine line that the, the state's trying to walk there to both encourage compliance um, while also maintaining a high environmental standards. So for those of us who aren't cultivators in, in California, what are some of those standards and which ones are sort of the hardest ones to meet? Yeah, I mean, basically you need to, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. So if you are a cultivator <laughs> in California, uh, you know, talk to, talk to a consultant or a lawyer before you, uh, you know, say, oh, this is all I have to do. But essentially, I mean, you need to get a permit from um, oftentimes three different uh, sort of state groups. So you need your local permit, which is from your um, local government. You know, if you're in rural California, that's usually going to be your county government. And the county government will also will often say will also of, often have some type of zoning that will say, okay, you can only grow cannabis on land that's zoned this way, has this soil type, and this slope is located so far from public land and so far from schools, and you know all of these other things. So you know basically that sort of first level of regulation, the zoning regulation, makes it so that you know you're not going to permit a farm on land that's that's not appropriate for agricultural production, right? So if you meet that first standard, it, it basically means you have a, a parcel that the, your local municipality has said, okay, this is set up to, to successfully grow cannabis without there being too much of an environmental threat. So that's the first step. And that's actually a pretty, you know, for a lot of farmers, there's still most counties in California do not allow cannabis cultivation. So um, outdoor cannabis cultivation. And so that's actually really a big challenge. Then you oftentimes need to show uh, that you have a water right, right? So that you you have enough water to grow cannabis before you can get a permit. And so this can be sort of a combination of uh, dealing with the state water boards as well as the Department of Fish and Wildlife. And I don't understand completely the minutia of all of the, the regulations there, but essentially, um, you know, you need to show that you have uh, enough water to grow cannabis without taking water from streams at the time of year where uh, it would be impactful. So, uh, you know, a good example of, uh, you know, the difference between cannabis and other agriculture is, you know, all of these North Coast farms, some of them have water rights to, to draw water from the rivers to, to irrigate their crop, but they're not allowed to draw water during the summer. So they can only draw water from essentially November until uh, March. Of course, when they need the water is the summer, which is, uh, and so that, that means essentially the, their water right is only good to take water out for storage. It's not good to actually irrigate directly on plants where, you know, most other farmers in California, they're, they're irrigating in the summer directly on their plants, you know, from, from the, the water system, the water right that they have. So this is, you know, one of those differences. Uh, you also need to, you know, when you're going through and getting your permits, you need to have, um, you know, your roads need to be up to, to standards. Um, and this is somewhat disputed and, and I've heard lawyers say both things, but if you're doing any production or any manufacturing or, or processing on your farm and it becomes um, uh, sort of a manufacturing center, then all of a sudden everything in your facility needs to be ADA compliant. So you need to have an ADA bathroom 
you need to have, you know, parking spots for, for handicapped people. And, you know, this is all fine, but if we think of this as all just happening at a small farm out in the woods, you know, all of a sudden that's a big burden when, you know, somebody would normally just let the person trimming go to the bathroom in their house, and now they have to build an ADA-compliant bathroom mm. <laughs> to have the trimmer go to the bathroom somewhere. You know, it becomes it becomes difficult. So there's, you know, sort of all these different layers of regulations that I think have made have made uh, the process uh, both uh, high high performing. So if you meet the standard, I think you are performing really high. But the bar is also so high that for some growers, it's it's just very difficult to to figure out how to meet the meet the standards and get the permits. Okay. Well, now I'm going to put you on the spot and give mm -hmm. you the magic wand. And then if you were in charge and you're able to either remove some regulations or maybe enact some new ones to really sort of um, reduce the environmental impact of cannabis cultivation, what would you, what would you do? I mean, I think for, for me, it's, it's the main thing is getting, um, getting more people into the regulated market. And I think we do that probably through um, two things. Um, first, we need to have uh, more help for farmers who are trying to join the regulated market. I mean, if you think of a small cannabis farmer who's been growing cannabis for 10 years in Humboldt County, and they have a good supply chain on the unregulated market, and they can sell it for cash, and you know they, they know what they're doing, the incentives to join the regulated market are not that high <laughs> and, and, and the barriers to get there are pretty high as far as getting, you know, just working through all the permits, especially if we think about, you know, not, you know, I don't want to generalize about cannabis farmers, but many of the people who have been active in the, in, 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 in illicit industry probably don't have, you know, the networks and connections that make it easy to join the permitted industry. And so I think the state can step up in, in as far as like helping lower those barriers to compliance. So, you know, having some free consulting for cannabis farmers, um, you know, having peer-to-peer -peer mentoring for cannabis farmers, having some programs that, um, you know, where the state is willing to pay for some of the cost of, of helping these farmers get into the, the regulated market. So that's the first thing I would do is, is somehow reduce the barriers to to compliance, um, and I think the state can do that without lowering their standards through through supplying supplying help to the farmers, um, you know, to, to work through this process for the first time. And then the second thing is, um, you know, eventually there needs to be some type of enforcement on the non-regulated farmers, right, so that that they don't have the incentive to stay in the regulated market. Uh, this is a really tricky question because a lot of the the unregulated farmers are, are not doing anything. Uh, environmentally wrong. You know, we know many of them are, are sustainable farmers and, and they're just making a living, you know, on these small farms. And so, you know, we don't want to sort of uh, bring the hammer down on people at the same time uh, without without some threat of, of enforcement against non-regulated farms. It's hard to see why a lot of people would, would get into the, the regulated industry. So part of the problem, and this is sort of the, the elephant in the room that you know policymakers have, have always struggled to deal with, is the fact that can California just produces far, far, far more cannabis than it consumes. So right now there's no way to distribute cannabis that's legally grown in California outside the state. 
right? So we can't sell our cannabis to Illinois, even though it's now legal to just smoke cannabis there, right? And so basically that means that if every farmer were to uh, join the legal market, there would simply be way too much cannabis in California, you know, if it's small, the legal market. Um, and so eventually there needs to be some way for cannabis farmers in California to sell their cannabis legally outside of the state. Um, federally, that's not possible now. Um, again, I don't know the minutia of the laws, but that, that that's really sort of one of the underlying problems is simply there's an oversupply of cannabis for how much is, is consumed in California. And um, there needs to be some way for California farmers to sell outside of the state. And once there's a legal pathway to do that, then I think we'll see more farmers um, get on board and, and join the regulated market. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting point. And um, I always find it interesting to think when cannabis does finally become federally legal and you can sell across state lines, you know, where is the Napa Valley of cannabis going to crop up? I, yeah. I suspect there'll be uh, quite a bit of cannabis coming from California, just with the experience of the growers out there. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, you know, that's, that's really the, <laughs> I mean, that's really the, the long-term solution, right? Is some federal legalization in some form such that, farmers in California can export legally. And, um, and when that happens, I think we'll, we'll probably see a lot more people get into the legal market. Um, All right. And wrapping up here, I, I was curious to ask you sort of how has cannabis cultivation, if at all, how have the, the practices changed over the years and have those changes been better or worse for the environment? That's a great question. And I mean, one thing that I would would say is we still, as sort of a research community, are are just scratching the surface to understand the cultivation methods. Um, I think relative to sort of other agricultural crops, there's just a huge diversity in the way people produce cannabis and, and grow cannabis on farms. I think every, I mean, every, I mean, it's one of the delightful things about working in this area is every cannabis farmer has sort of their own secret twist, right, that they like to to do that they think helps helps them produce the best cannabis and you know whatever little niche ecosystem they're growing and so you know there's this huge um heterogeneous sort of <laughs> movement and or, or uh there's this big diversity of, of growing methods in cannabis um you know the one thing that we've been able to sort of quantify a little bit through uh the satellite imagery that we, we use is um during uh Earlier times in California, essentially during during medical cannabis, um, you could grow up to 99 plants and feel pretty safe um, of not having enforcement actions against you. And so then, you know, because it was regulated by the number of plants, uh, a lot of people grew these massive trees. They were, you know, interested in how can I get the most production from 99 plants? And the way to do that was to just grow these really, really huge cannabis plants. Um, the new regulations in California are all based on square foot. So, you know, you don't, you can grow as many plants as you want, but you do it in, you know, 10,000 square feet or 20,000 square feet or 5,000 square feet, depending on the permit you have. And so the production practices have changed um, to much smaller plants um, and, and sort of packing them in tightly. 
The other thing, and, and so, you know, we've seen the, we've seen a, a shift from, you know, a number of big plants to, to many, many more smaller plants. I mean, and then the other thing that we've seen is uh, mixed light and, and double cropping becoming really common. So if you can do some type of uh, light depth, you can, in, in most of California, get, get two crops a season. And, and this is becoming super common. And, and I would say, I don't know if the majority of farmers are doing it yet, but, but certainly a large percentage of farmers are, are now doing more than one crop a year um, by doing some light manipulation. Yeah. And I'm curious, are they using autoflower varieties more often too? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I've talked to some growers who are, uh, but I, I, I wouldn't be able to put sort of a percentage on that at all. I would have no idea. <laughs> That's a good question there. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, I'm just, I'm curious. I know that the yeah. folks up at Oregon CBD, we've talked to Seth Crawford before, and uh, they're really big believers in autoflower that that's going to be the future, but maybe they're, maybe they're a little too far ahead. Maybe that hasn't caught up quite yet, but uh, no, it, it, it's, no, it is definitely an interest, interesting technology and, and something that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, if it, if it works, right. <laughs> then I, yeah. I think, I think, um, yeah, there, there's, it certainly fits that style of production. Yeah. And as you mentioned too, some, some of these folks have been growing cannabis for decades and they have their methods that work and maybe they're not willing to change quite yet too, which, uh, which is fine. There's definitely something to be said for, for experience. Yeah, um, absolutely. Finally, one more thing I wanted to ask you, are there any new innovations in cultivation um, that have you excited or that you're particularly interested in? That's a great question. Um, it's okay if there's not. <laughs> no, no, I mean, there's. I mean, I've seen some really cool things. I mean, some of the. I mean, one of the neatest things I've seen is is there's actually some some dry farmers up in Humboldt County who hmm. who cultivate with no irrigation at all, and it's a very specific area where they they have uh, they they're on this like floodplain basically and. Um, the the water table's uh, fairly shallow and mm -hmm. it's this really fine porous soil and they basically plant right into this porous soil and as the the top of the soil and they leave it they, they make everything bare underneath the cannabis so like there's no it's just bare soil and basically as the as the soil heats up it pulls up water from below and and basically irrigates the plant that way wow. and um it's really cool. Uh, there's some great videos. If you just look up dry farming cannabis, Humboldt County, you'll, you'll find some great YouTube videos of it. It's totally wild. I mean, it looks, it looks totally, totally different. Um, and so I guess that's one, I mean, that's a technology that's like very specific to that area, but is, is definitely uh, pretty cool. I mean, the other thing that, and this is indoor cultivation, which I don't, I'm not an expert in at all, but, you know, I have had some conversations with, with people who, you know, have had careers in, um, you know, big agricultural indoor cultivation systems, uh, you know, growing, you know, massive, massive quantities of cucumbers or tomatoes. And, you know, they still sort of think that the technologies used by the average indoor cannabis farmer are like <laughs> far from optimal. And, and mm -hmm. you know, they, they say like relative to the type of production, you know, you might see in the Netherlands for, 
their indoor tomato production or cucumber production or strawberry production, you know, cannabis still actually has a long way to go to, to sort of meet those, those standards. And so, you know, that'll be interesting to see when these people who aren't experts in cannabis, but are experts in like super efficient, you know, indoor and, and greenhouse growing, uh, feel more comfortable jumping into this, into this market, you know, what innovations they bring with them as far as technology and, and things like that. That's a common refrain with a lot of these conversations I've been having is that there's still a lot to learn and there's still a lot of room for improvement in all, all facets, facets of the, the cannabis industry, which is what makes it so interesting and so exciting for us. Um, but all right. I've, I think I've kept you Van long enough. Uh, I want to thank you again for, for joining us today and look forward to meeting you out in Pasadena and, hearing you talk more about the environmental impacts of, of cannabis cultivation on the, the panel that you'll be participating on. So until then. Yep. See you later. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Van Butzik. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to our sponsor, Colorado Seed. Our next episode will drop February 24th. In the meantime, please go to canmedevents.com slash coffee talk and sign up for email updates. That will enter you into a drawing to win two tickets to our CanMed 2021 VIP dinner and keep you up to date with all things CanMed 2021. If social media is your thing, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, if you are listening via a podcast app, go ahead and hit the subscribe button so that new episodes automatically download to your device. And please leave us a five-star review as well. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next episode of CanMed Coffee Talk.